Hi everyone, Happy New Year. I'm Peter Ayers and welcome back to Stages. Here we go with Season 2, a series of conversations with creatives who reflect on their careers, share some insight and anecdotes and always engage with historical, occupational and personal perspectives. I'll be talking to actors, singers, teachers, drag performers, designers, directors and playwrights. In fact, anyone whose role is about connecting with an audience. So let's kick off with Season 2, Episode 1, and Stage's first guest is Martin McCullum. Martin McCullum's career trajectory has taken him from actor to stage manager to production manager to the managing director of Cameron McIntosh. Overseeing the worldwide production of the English musical juggernauts Cats, Les Miserables, The Phantom of the Opera and Miss Saigon. As a producer in his own right, he has fostered the development of musicals The Girls, Spider-Man and co-produced Edward Scissorhands, The Ballet with Matthew Bourne. His working period has also seen a time at the National Theatre of Great Britain, working alongside Sir Laurence Olivier and Sir Peter Hall, artistic directors with different management styles and extraordinary vision. Martin has worked on over 500 shows and in an absorbing chat with stages, he shares his experiences on just a few of them and details an extraordinary life in the theatre. Yeah, well, and only now are the government beginning to realise that imagination and creativity are actually the keys to a healthy business community. You know, because all of that is is all about self-expression. And that might be doing physics, Yes, you know. But it's, it's yes. about understanding. Ste- the STEM subjects aren't going to work unless you've got that no. creative well, approach. Well, it should be STEAM. <laughs> yes, yes, put the arts is, in there as well. Is what the argument has been, that STEM should be changing to STEAM. And, um, yeah, no, I'm all for that. And, you know, as dear old Pierre Rickman said, you know, um, culture and creativity are the way man really explores his humanity. And that is unique, you know. No other creature has culture in that way. You went to a, an arts-centred school with Frencham Heights? Well, yes, it, would, it was called Progressive in those days, and I think if my father had realised, he would never have sent me there. I think he thought he was sending me just to a public school and giving me an education that he didn't have. Well, I, I was averse to... Academic work. I didn't think I was bright enough, actually, to be really honest. I didn't think I was very good at that, and I didn't understand the academic world because I couldn't relate it to reality. And every time I asked a question, I was told to just shut up and learn it. And I could only learn things that I could understand and give context to. So I ended up gravitating to sport, and I became a huge sports person. And through that... I ended up doing modern dance under a lady called Vivian Soldan, who was Jacques Delcroze's, one of her star pupils. Right. So that was a very happy accident. And that led me into performing at school. And so when I left school, I had no idea what I was going to do. And I was quite intimidated by the thought. I was sent off for a, um, a sort of... Uh, assessment in London I remember sent off to this grey building in Welbeck Street which I often walked past since and uh, was assessed and basically it's um, like an IQ test and um, I just uh, I just knew that um, I had a way of expressing myself but I had no doorway through which I could go to do that and so when I left school um, I thought well I'm not going to be able to 
go off and play sport. I had been offered a place at university, believe it or not, if I got my A-levels, um, to play hockey, because I was very good at hockey. But anyway, I went off to do a technical college course in, believe it or not, French, German and business studies, uh, which I hated. Um, and I only liked the French and German because it was a bit like acting, talking foreign languages. I was at college and I got invited into this club to do a film for the BBC, which was a competition they used to run in those days for amateur films, and ended up getting quite a good part in it. And, and I suddenly thought, well, if I'm doing all this, I should learn a bit more about the theatre, really. And by coincidence, I met somebody um, who said, I know somebody who works at a local theatre. So to cut a long story short, I ended up working in the theatre at weekends. It was the end of weekly rep. And so I was there every weekend helping change the sets around and get stuff ready. And then bleary-eyed on a Monday morning, I would trudge back to college. And after I'd done this for about a year or so, um, I was asked if I'd like a job. And I said, oh, what does that mean? He said, well, we give you a full-time job here. I said, that's fantastic. We'll call you a student ASM. We'll give you a pound a week. And I said, excuse me, a, a pound a week? But you give me three pounds a week at the weekends. Working as a casual? They said, yes, but casual labour is very expensive. <laughs> and that was my induction to the business world of negotiating in the theatre. Anyway, I accepted it and... Um, well, that was really the beginning of my journey. I suddenly, you suddenly had, felt I was at home. You had to tell your parents then, didn't you? Because well, you'd been moonlighting, really. Yes, that, yeah. I had. I didn't. My mother, my mother knew, but I didn't tell my father. And in fact, when my father found out, he didn't speak to me for about eighteen months. Through disappointment, or yeah. Well, he felt my parents were pretty poor. They were, you know, they sold fruit and veg and had spent any money they had on sending me off to an education and my father felt that I'd thrown that back in his face. And you also have to remember, um, in those days, people who worked in the theatre were really considered outside of society. Hmm. They were, you know, near-do-wells, as my father would say, and they led very dubious lives. <laughs> um, yeah, it was a very different world then. My parents came from a generation having gone through the war and lost, you know, what little they had and struggling to make a living after the war, had, you know, realised that to have the security of a job was the most important thing, whatever it was, whereas the last thing I wanted was security. I wanted to get out in the world and try and work out why I was in it. What was I here for? And... Uh, I was really very lucky. I, was, I worked for a lady who was the stage director in that company who um, had been there for quite a long time. Joan Knight was there before, who was very well known in repertory theatre in those days. She was one of the stars. And a lady called Caroline Smith took over. And then this stage director had transitioned through that period. And um, she really gave me my values in the theatre and I realised that I'd found a family, in a way, that I hadn't had before. And that was very special to me. Um, and also it was a, a world in those days where you were basically a jack of all trades. You did everything. You know, you'd be 
building sets, painting props, reupholstering. Because the, the training institutions at the time uh, were perhaps only for actors, really. They, they went for the, the technical yeah, roles in theatre. Yeah, there was no obvious um, mainstream um, training for that certainly in the early 60s. I mean, the drama school was there, and I remember thinking, I'm doing this until I can go to drama school. But once once I got into it, I thought, there's, there's no way I can really go to drama school now. I don't... I couldn't We were serving, serving an apprenticeship. I, yeah, I did. Mm-hmm. And, and I enjoyed other aspects, aside from learning to be a young actor, you know, and you do all sorts of... Things. I mean, I can remember playing small parts where you'd run off and you'd be the one free to operate the lighting board, so you do the next lighting cue, and then you know maybe set a couple of props. Um, so it was, yeah, it was a, an amazing induction, and uh, and as I say, it was a family because you were together, you know, up to fifteen hours a day. So ex- seven ex- days a week. explain to us uh, what the English Repertory Theatre system was. How did that work? Well, it was. Uh, it was a series of local theatres throughout the region, some larger than others, that were the the mainstay of employment for the acting community because in those days, television was still in its infancy. You know, I started working in the theatre in 65, 66. I had got my first full-time one-pound-a-week job uh, in September 67. So, yes, that's... I'm celebrating my 50 years. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> um, and those actors that came round, you know, um, I mean, June Brown, Miriam Carlin, Harold Lang, um, you know, there was a whole range of people that then appeared on our television sets or on movies in the following 10 years. I mean, Miriam Carlin became a huge star on British television. Well, tell t- the television film, they were looking for talent to sort of that they could exactly. use on the screen. Yeah, yeah but where, did, where was the talent? No. It was all working in the British repertory system, playing Pit Lockery in the summer. Some amazing artists that would go to Pit Lockery. And then, of course, Olivier had Chichester, which was the forerunner of the National Theatre. Um, and, you know, other artists, you know, Gilgood and Ralph Richardson would be playing Seasons in the West End. Um, with Binky Beaumont being, you know, the impresario, um, among many others, of course, but Binky was probably the most well-known at that time. And uh, and so that's where everybody worked. And everybody worked on, you know, as you can see, v- relatively very low wages. Um, but that's what people wanted to do. Um, and that that network of of repertory company. I mean, it must have been in its 50s and 60s of uh, theatres around the country. And it didn't really get scythed until the early 70s. And then the whole system began to fall apart, partly because of funding, um, because of the costs and the change of living standards, union regulations. I mean, when I first worked in rep, you did anything. by the time um, that you got to the end of the 60s, it was so unionised that, you know, acting ASMs weren't allowed to do anything technical. Um, it started... It wasn't an aggressive thing, but it was seen as a modernisation and a protection. Um, but sadly, it removed 
um, an understanding for people because when you work across disciplines you understand things certainly as an actor that you would never understand if all you did was act um, you learn what other people had to go through and the difficulties they had to face in basically servicing your performance and I thought that was a really healthy thing um, to do um, and it certainly was very valuable to me because it showed me so many different careers I could have in the theatre from you know a purely creative side and I ended up doing lighting design and sound design after being a stage manager and a bad actor for a number of years. Um, well, well theatre is so much about the collaborative experience isn't it? There's so many disparate parts so that I think if you, you do have an experience or an appreciation of, of, of all of those it can only make you a better practitioner in whatever field you're, yeah, you've chosen. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it also did something else to the young actor because all of these companies were established often with people who would go back year after year. There would be a number of changes but and new people introduced, but you know the core of the company might go back and play a season in that company every year. Um, and so cross-casting was a real art form to get this group of people who had to be able to play all the parts in all of the disparate plays. Now, what that tended to do with younger actors who were not the leading actors, there would be leading actors who would come in for a season and maybe do two or three plays out of the seven or eight or ten that you might do, depending on how many weeks you ran a show for. Well, as a young actor, you would often get cast in a role that you weren't really quite suited for. But what it did was stretch you. And you were often playing parts above your age range or beyond your natural characteristics. That really made you think about how to make this believable. And that was a fantastic grounding for young actors doing more than they should have done. I left the repertory system and uh, after being a a lighting designer and a sound designer, such as that was in those days. That, that meant that you were basically the technician, but you happened to light the shows. And you hung the lights. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, in the West End, those shows were still lit or relit by the stage manager. You didn't have teams. You know, when I first started doing um, shows, you know, you'd have people like Joe Davis, who was the lighting designer, um, who would have a technician assistant with him but when that show moved, if it was on tour before it came into the West End, it would have been relit by the stage manager at each venue. And only when it came into the West End would Joe come in and look at it again and make sure it was you know, presentable for a West End audience. Um, there was no history of technical departments. The production manager did not exist uh, in those days. You had a stage director in rep, depending on how big the theatre was, and you know whether they were building their own scenery in quite sophisticated circumstances. So I imagine it would be quite easy then at that time for shows to get out of hand, performances or things to go wrong if there wasn't a caretaking team on site ensuring that the original vision was maintained. Well, it found a level you know, that was custom and practice. It wasn't abnormal. That was the way things tended to happen. And you relied very much on the offices of the company manager and the stage manager in commercial situations. Um, but when, um, when I started to do commercial shows as a producer, um, 
I was very keen to bring what I'd done with the production office as a central part of how you approach putting a show together, which was giving as much respect to the design and technical department as one gave to the company and the directorial department. And, and that, I think, had quite an impact on the way shows were looked after and the way companies felt that they were considered. Let's jump back to, at age 21, you scored quite a big job at the, at the beginning of quite a, what, what was to be a, a juggernaut enterprise at, at the National. Yes, I was very fortunate. Um, I was happily lighting shows and um, running around in Manchester and I got a message asking me if I would like to go for an interview to the old Vic for assistant production manager. So this is because somebody had heard about you or what you happened, were doing a good job? What had happened was that I had, um, through an old family friend who was actually a very important person in the theatre historically through Sadler's Wells, and with the man who actually was the reason, and everybody forgets this, but the reason the National Theatre really happened in the end was a man called Stephen Arlen, who ran Sadler's Wells Opera and Ballet. And that became English National Opera, what we know as English National Opera now. And uh, a lady there was um, a family member, not by blood, but through marriage. And she'd been asked to talk to me, to get me out of going to, into the theatre by my father, who had been desperate. We're going back years now when I was, you know, 16, 17 years old. And... Um, she uh, had suggested that maybe I go for an interview um, to their production department. And in those days, there were only four or five companies, the national companies that had production management departments, the National, the RSC, the Royal Opera, Sadler's Wells or English National Opera as it was. And um, I went along and, uh, you know, did this sort of test was given all sorts of questions about well, how you would face this issue or that issue um, but I was clearly far too young I was you know 20 years old I think 19 20 years old and um, I didn't get uh, I didn't get the job but I had a great day in London which was a treat in those days you know locked away in you know whatever city you were working in and uh, sometime later it must have been eight or nine months later I got this message and what had happened was that the national companies used to talk to each other and um, the old Vic had obviously said, we need somebody. And the guy said, well, this guy would be perfect. He wasn't really experienced enough for us, but as an assistant, he might be quite interesting. So that's how the interview happened. And then I got, I got the job. Um, I was, I mean, I, I didn't quite realize what I was stepping into I didn't you know I didn't know a huge amount about Olivier I you know I hadn't studied um I just knocked about in the theater had you seen uh, much of Olivier on screen no no right I I mean going to the you know going to the cinema was still a bit of a luxury right um I'd go to the Saturday morning kids thing you know uh, and I mean that wasn't something I did you know, I was either out playing sport or I was suddenly working full-time in a theatre and you didn't see anything. Um, 
Anyway, I bundled up. I remember I arrived. On those shows at the, the National in those days, you did three production weekends before every show opened. And I arrived for the first production weekend of Coriolanus. And uh, that was quite extraordinary. Um, it was, I found out afterwards, it was supposed to have been starring Chris Plummer. And Tony Hopkins took over Chris Plummer. It was being done with the, um, with the Berliner Ensemble, Manfred Weckfurt. And they thought that they were doing the Shakespearean Coriolanus. And they weren't. Right. They were doing breakfast. <laughs> Plummer was beside himself. Anyway, um, I was thrown into this incredibly dynamic and grown-up situation, very sophisticated to my eyes, you know, huge technical departments, um, very complex um, scheduling and programming. And remember, it, this was not repertory, this was repertoire. So you might have three different productions playing in a week with enormous changeovers overnight, quite significant physical productions, complex lighting rigs. Um, yeah, it was, it was the time to be a stagehand. And they, you know, worked hours and hours and earned huge amounts of money. Um, so I was dropped into this, you know. Was unionisation playing a part then? Yes. Um, it actually became the reason I left the National Theatre, funnily enough. Um, but there was a house agreement there. There was no, you know, it was very early days for any of this kind of stuff. But a house agreement had been negotiated with NACI, which was the union, as it was in those days. And um, it was pretty tough. You know, if you didn't get breaks, you could have people working on triple time for days afterwards until they got an 18-hour break just because they'd had an inky lunch four days before or something. Right. So it, it could all escalate and get very out of hand. Um, anyway, it was a very exciting time and I learned a huge amount. Um, but then suddenly within... 13 months, I got my notice because the National was in huge debt and there was a crisis and people were being fired left, right and centre. Was it was uh, Peter Hall running it? No, it? no, 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 it was Olivier. It's Olivier, right. Um, and, um, and I had to go and that was, it was awful really because I was having such a good time. I was very lucky, I did all of Olivier's shows. I, I took over Merchant of Venice and took him on tour as soon as I got there. Um, and I, uh, I then went in, somebody who was working on Amphitryon, which he was directing, had a bit of a, a crack up. And so I was sent out to take over the show in Oxford. Um, that was Chris Plummer and Geraldine McEwen and Olivier directing. And that's, I guess, where our bond came because I was so green. I had no idea. I should have been terrified. I just marched in. I remember David Hersey was trying to light the back of this set, which looked like the Pearl and Dean advertisement on the cinema we used to have in those days, these huge Greek temples of the gods in white. And they were made of this plastic that if you touched it, it just left fingerprints over it or it dented or it tore. And we had three lots of them, a yellow set, a pink set and a blue set for each act. 
And David Hersey was up at the back trying to light this psych and he'd heard that I was coming over. And I remember him turning around to me and saying, you're a lighting designer, you light this fucking psych. And stormed <laughs> off. And uh, I don't think I went to bed whilst I was in Oxford. Not, not for the first seven or eight days. I used to send carpenters back there to go and have a bath and a shower and a sleep in the afternoons. Um, and I remember one night I'd been doing an all-nighter for the cloud machine that um, Chris Plummer's double had to come down on because Chris would appear on stage in a second. And he would have to um, mime to a speech that was played through a speaker in the back of this big cloud. And it didn't work. And it didn't work because, frankly, the, uh, the cover for it wasn't actually miming correctly in type. But Sir kept convinced that it was because the speaker wasn't in the right place and it had to be moved and this had happened on a number of occasions before I got there and I was now charged with the next move of the speaker overnight whilst various other things were happening on stage and we had a fantastic Irish prop lady, prop buyer who had been around, worked in the film industry a lot and um, I was standing by the pass door in the morning with her, it would have been about 7, 7.30 in the morning and she always had a little hip flask with her and uh, I was getting very aerated about this, saying this is crazy and Sir was wearing um, a uh, what would you call it um, he was wearing one of those neck protectors Big plastic thing, so he couldn't move his. All right, so a brace, a brace, of some sort. a yes. neck brace, yep. and um, I was, you know, just letting off steam. And I said, I know why. Where's that fucking thing? It's to stop people like me from strangling him. <laughs> and as I said that, this hand I felt on my shoulder, and I turned round, and it was him. And he'd had a phone call from the office the night before, saying. They'd, nobody'd heard from me, and was I or how was everything going? And he, of course, didn't really know who I was. I was just somebody running around doing things. So he'd obviously said to them, "I'll go and find. I'll go and find him myself and see." And he'd come down to the theatre, and anyway, he took me off for breakfast, and that was the beginning of a very special relationship, really, because I was a baby. I was twenty-one, and he was in his autumn years already. You know. Oh, that's fantastic. Because you hear tales of him being quite a tyrant. Yeah, with, he, he... Perhaps with other actors. Uh, he... Yes, he had a huge reputation with other actors. Um, and he was... Whenever he was with us, he loved to play the technician. And he wasn't a technician, but he loved all of that. So it was very much a performance. And it was a little team together. Um... I never really saw him in those situations where he was dealing with the politics of running the company, which were hard, um, and, you know, all of the issues of the actor-manager, which is what he was at that time. And he also wasn't well. He was, he was beginning to become unwell. Um, but he was a very gentle soul with me. Um, uh, only on stage did you really see the power of this man which was, you know, I mean, his physicality is 
so hard to describe to people today. I mean, he would work out under the stairs. The housekeeper was called Harry Henderson, and he was a, a real um, weightlift fanatic. And Larry would go and sit under the stairs and get into this machine and push all of these homemade weight contraptions that Harry had put together. Um, yeah, he was amazing on, to see him on stage. I mean, the power. And then the gentleness of him. I remember almost weeping in Long Day's Journey in Tonight, which was the first show I did entirely from the ground up with him. Um, and dear old Michael Blakemore directed. Um, and he did this one sequence, sitting at a table not unlike this, with a table lamp plugged into the light hanging from above. So it's a very small, intimate moment. And he's talking about the the windows in this factory high above. And he just took that moment right down that you would hear a pin drop. You know, in what is actually a very rumbustuous play of angst and agony, you know. Yeah, he was a, he had a huge impact on me. Uh, and many of those actors, um, you know, Tony Hopkins, um, he again was, you know, quite extraordinary. Um, and a great company of actors, you know, who were not well known to the public um, at large, but were very well known within, you know, the community. Um, so it was, a, it was a great time. And there were some, you know, some directors like John Dexter, who, you know, again, was completely different, was a real martinet and ran everything like a military operation. And, you know, and, oh, I mean, I could tell you stories about him that, you know, would make you... Toes curl, yeah. <laughs> but a great grounding and, and made you realise how on it you had to be. You really had to be on it. You know, you couldn't afford to bullshit about anything. So a great grounding and, uh, and it came too soon to a close, sadly, with, uh, with Olivier. I left and, uh, and I went off. Uh, well, I went off not quite no what I was going to do, but then um, I got a phone call a couple of years later. Um, well, I actually got a telegram first, and days of telegram still, um, which said, all is forgiven, come home, and a phone number, and I recognised the phone number, and I rang the annex, and uh, Donald said, we're moving, we're going to go to the South Bank, it's all going to get built, come back and join us again. So I did. I went back to the National and uh, worked at the Old Vic. Um, as production manager? As production manager, yeah. And, um, yes, had the last um, the last bit with Olivier, which was wonderful. And then Peter Hall arrived and everybody was terrified. Um, the rumours, of course, you can imagine what, what had happened, you know. Um, but he, he arrived, and, and I remember the first show that we had to do with him was Tempest. Gilgood was playing Prospero. And um, Richard and I, you know, we would normally, he was the other production manager, we would alternate in what we were going to do. And he said, let's do this one together, because if we fuck it up, we'll both go together. <laughs> and we were, at that point, the only team that, in advance of him coming in, hadn't been tinkered with. Everybody else had been changed. Literary managers, casting directors, senior stage managers had all been changed. Uh, anyway, we came to do The Tempest. and I mean, it was a massive 
John Berry production. That was the first time I worked with John. I went on to work with John for many shows after that, who was, you know, came from Joan Littlewood and um, that whole make and men do inventing scenery out of bomb rubble in London, you know, fantastically able designer. And uh, we did this show and the show was a success. Um, very over the top. I mean, it had everything in it, every special effect that we invented. I can remember throwing hydraulic, uh, not hydraulic uh, fluid, I can remember throwing um, liquid nitrogen across the back of the stage, um, trying to get this effect of sea mist in the air. Yeah. <laughs> and it worked brilliantly. So I dressed some stagehands up in those protective suits yes. with those gloves and I had carboids of liquid nitrogen and they were standing at the back <laughs> throwing it up into the air as the light hit it. And it was completely mad, long, long before the days of health and safety. And I had uh, argon tubes in the mast um, that would fire this high voltage through the mast so it looked like St Elmo's fire creeping up the mast. Were there many accidents? No. It's bizarre, it's bizarre isn't it? Yes, time yeah. before occupational health and safety. Yeah. But um, Well, actually, having said that, <laughs> having said that um, there was a terrible accident on that show. And Caliban and Prospero played chess at a table on the fourth stage. Um, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with the old Vic in, in those days at all, but it had this very deep fourth stage uh, with a big old pit underneath it. The, the set had been brought through uh, and the floor of the stage, and we had a thing called the assembly areas, which were renowned at the old Vic, where actors would enter down through these assembly areas. Well, anyway, um, this trap had uh, gone down, and John Gielgud, um, whose birthday it was, that day, walked across the trap and it hadn't been locked. Oh, no. And he just went straight through. I'm not sure what age he would have been then, but I think it was his 70th birthday. It was a significant birthday. And oh, Jackie so He Harvey, was playing Prospero, obviously. Yes. Yeah. And Jackie Harvey, who was the stage manager, was sitting at the production desk. And... Uh, she just turned to me and she went, oh, fuck, I've just, I've just killed the first night of the theatre. <laughs> and uh, we all ran to the front of the stage. And Tommy Connor, who was the prop master, was underneath. He was collecting stuff. And Gilgood had landed on him. And he was lying there going, it's all right, I'm perfectly fine. <laughs> Very lucky. Very lucky. He knew how to fall. Well, yes, I guess he was so relaxed that he probably, you know, didn't really realise what had happened until he hit Tommy. But, that, I mean, those things happened. Gillian Lynn, again, mm. in Cats, backing off the front of the, the, the stage, not Cats, in Phantom, fell into the orchestra pit. Mm. Uh, and again, I mean, how she didn't spike, she fell into the percussion section, how she didn't spike herself on a hi-hat stand or something. God only knows. And again, she was absolutely perfectly fine. So, uh, you know, accidents do happen. And some of them, of course, we've seen in the years since have been some horrific, fatal accidents. Um, and so the theatre has always been a dangerous place. And maybe in the early days where we were less adventurous in some of the things that we approached, we were lucky, luckier maybe than we should have been. Um, 
but it is a yeah it's a very dangerous place and one has to be very careful you um so you work reasonably closely with Laurence Olivier and Peter Hall. What did you learn from them about leading a company? Well, Larry was all about the company, the actors. Um, and there was an incredible... Because he was a living legend, um, uh, he was revered in a way. You know, Everybody loved him, and, and loved really was the word. In fact, I can remember doing another show with him, Eden End, the last um, J.B. Priestley that they did. And Joan was starring in it. Oh, and in right. fact, Pri- and Priestley came to rehearsals. I remember meeting Priestley at the rehearsals in the rehearsal room on uh, the Old Vic. Uh, and Olivier directed it. And he'd promised me on Amphitryon he'd never direct again. And I can remember him saying to me at the first day of rehearsals, yes, sorry about this, dear. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, we were doing this show and it had to rain. And Dickie Pilbrow, the, the lighting designer of all time, was lighting the show. He was always Olivier's lighting designer. Um, came to light it, and it had to rain. It was a view through this living room out into the Dales, and there was a doorway. You could see the back door of the house, and it had to rain outside the back door. And I'd done this absolutely sensational rain effect that rained through the back of the windows, all with these special little hoses, and uh, suddenly Dickie Probra said, I can't light the set, and every time I get a light near the windows, the windows just reflect everybody in the first six rows. So I had to cant all of the windows to obviate the reflection, which was, and again, because we had the three weekend production changeovers, I had time to get it back to the workshops and, and do it but it completely screwed my rain effect. And I said, I can't, the rain effect doesn't work anymore because the depth was very critical. And Sir Lawrence said to me, I know how to do this. I did this in New York. And I, I can't remember now what show he, he did it on, but he sent me out to buy all of these shag pile shower mats. And I went down the cut and, and bought all these mats, made a frame up. And I thought, this is ludicrous. This isn't going to work. For one reason, it's going to drip and drip. You can't stop it. It's just going to drip, and we're going to hear this noise. And uh, I, of course, had to go through the process because he was determined he knew how to do it and how it would work. And I was up there one day on my own, messing about with this. And uh, he saw me, he came through, and he saw me up there and he said, what are you doing? I said, I'm, I'm trying to get this effect to work, sir. And he said, come on, I'll get up there with you. So this, you know, mature man starts to climb up this ladder to get up to me. You know, we're about, I don't know, 16 feet up on the back of this set. And the head electrician and a gentleman who became quite a well-known lighting designer himself, Lenny Tucker, came by. And he was a real military man in his, you know, how you behave with people. And he absolutely ripped me off the strip. He said, what are you doing with Sir Lawrence up there? You could get him killed. What do you think's going on? <laughs> and Sir Lawrence appeased him and said, it's fine, Lenny. Lenny obviously went down to the green room muttering to himself because within 15 minutes we had an audience of actors and technicians watching this sight of these two people on the top. 
And I was getting quite embarrassed now. And I said to him, look, sir, this isn't going to work, I'm afraid. And he said, I know. But it's fun, isn't it? <laughs> and he was playing to the crowd. They were loving it, and he was loving it. And he was very—he was very good. And he made everybody feel they were part of his family. If he didn't know somebody's name, he'd say, "Who's who's the guy over there with the spray on the psych?" And I'd say, "Oh, that's Fred." And he'd go over and talk to Fred as though he'd known Fred for a hundred years. And how was he today? And how was the family? And you know, just it was very. It's great, but also it's great business acumen as well. If you look after your staff and make them feel yeah. valued yeah. and appreciated, yeah. they're, they're going to go the yeah. extra mile. So that was his sort of focus, whereas uh, Peter was a much more private man. Um, I always say that he was a better politician than he was an artistic director right. because he never really brought that aspect of himself to the company in a public way. Um, now I know that he was very good with artists I did No Man's Land with him and for him to get Ralph and John to play together in those parts was an accomplishment in itself particularly when looked at the material and what does this really mean and what were the relationships potentially um, so you know he, he, was a, he was obviously a very talented man and very determined um, I mean, to have, you know, co-founded the Royal Shakespeare Company with Barton, to have then come on the work that he did at Glyndebourne. I mean, look, he even ended up being the artistic director of Glyndebourne whilst he was at the National Theatre. I mean, unheard of and raised many an eyebrow with us at the National. Um, but he was able to push those things through. Um, and it was a very difficult building to open. We had huge problems opening it. And uh, the issues that he were dealing with, uh, you know, were way beyond my understanding, I'm sure, at that time. Um, I can remember just struggling to physically get the building open. It was a nightmare, an absolute nightmare. And a lot of people were wrecked in the process um, of doing so. Um, but, you know, you always work to your leader, whoever it was. You can easily look back and say this was wrong or that was wrong but at the time you get on with the job because the most important thing is the show and the show has to open and you said it's going to open at that time on that day um so he you know he he conjured a spirit that was very different from olivier's but people you know loved him and wanted to work for him and it became a very big company too because you know when we were at the at the old vic the national theater was maybe 120 people yeah. When we went to the South Bank, it was 400 people. It was massive. Um, yeah, it was massive. So I think you had seven years at the National? Was... Yes. And then you left and started the production office? Yes. Tell me about that. Um, well, I'd had a... It all happened because I had a fight with Peter. Um, I was about to take No Man's Land to Canada in advance of it opening on Broadway. And uh, we had this strike, what was known in the British press as the National Theatre's plumber strike. And it was being used at that time as a ruse to just screw the management for all sorts of union issues. We had never resolved 
the House contract moving from the Old Vic to the National. And I had always argued that that had to be thrown away and we had to start fresh. And they wouldn't do that. And there were all sorts of reasons. I won't go into it now, but I ended up having a row with Victor Mishkon and Peter um, at a meeting that we were having a sort of crisis meeting during these whole rolling strike problems. And I remember Victor Mishkon saying, um, the National Theatre is a shop window, we have to present the best face. And I'm going, but no, we have to fix you know, the foundations first before we worry about the shop window. And I was, you know, look, I was a relatively junior person within the hierarchy there. I was a production manager, technical director. And um, I thought, well, you know, I, I just can't abide this. And I had done a moonlight, funnily enough, earlier. Um, I'd had a phone call um, maybe a year before um, that the stage door put through, and I remember it to this day. The stage door ran and said, I've got this lady on the phone called Helen Montague, I need to speak to you. Uh, and I said, Helen Montague, I don't know that. I don't know that name. Anyway, I took the phone call and, and this lady said to me, hello, my name's Helen Montague. Franco Zeffirelli says I have to employ you. And I went, oh, yes, what, <laughs> what's... Had I'm you worked sorry, with Zeffirelli yeah. or... Did, yes, I had there, there, worked. So there I was a worked. relationship, right? Yeah, yeah, no, I had worked with Zeffirelli. And, um, and so uh, I met her and I realised, and of course she was a probably the most important female producer ever to be produced to this state, and an Australian to boot. She bought 42nd Street out here. She did, yeah. yes, in her, in her more autumnal period. But she was a very important part of British theatre. She was at the Royal Court in those early days. You know, she was having all of those conversations with the new writers. Um, she was, I mean, you could do hours and hours on Helen. She was a, an amazing woman. Um, anyway, she was now um, she was now running... I don't know whether this was... She was still running Tenants or whether she'd set up her own backstage productions. But anyway, I got, I got inveigled into doing this show for Franco, which was with Joni again, and another very well-known actor at the time called Colin Blakely. And it was Philomena. And... Uh, I took that round the traps and then brought it into the West End for her. And she said, I've got loads of things. I'm going to do a new piece with Hayley Mills and this, and I want you to do, you know. And I said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm still at the National. I'm not sure that I can do that, but thank you. Um, and then um, I got a phone call from a designer that I'd worked with. Um, and got my real battle scars on with a, a, a show called um, Tales of Vienna Woods, Rodon von Horvath, and it was massive. Uh, we had a very famous, um, we had a very famous uh, reviewer in England at that time, who sneeringly said, um, "Not only you know is this show a remarkable production, but you can finally see the Olivier Revolve turning." which had famously not turned since the building opened. Because they, they couldn't get the mechanics couldn't to work? Get it or, to work right, no. okay. um, and it wasn't. I had built this temporary revolve, which was actually much bigger than the 
the revolve in the stage. Um, powered by two stagehands sitting on upturned racing bikes, pedaling it round. <laughs> um, because we couldn't, um, we couldn't do it with the motor because there were just too many deads. It had to go to so many positions and it had a set on it that moved, so it right. created these wonderful optical illusions. But it was a nightmare to do. Um, and I'd also done another show with them, John Gabriel Borkman with Wendy Hiller and Rafe Richardson, which again was a nightmare to do. And they had now been engaged by Hal Prince to do a show called Evita. And they rang me and said, would I go and do Evita for them in the West End? And um, I said, well, I'm at the National. I'm not sure I can do that. Anyway, it was a big project. So I'd arranged with the National that I would have a three to six month sabbatical. And my assistant would cover for me. I would prep everything. And that was the one good thing you knew what you were going to be doing. Um, and this was the, the year before. Anyway, the plumber strike happened and I decided that was it and I sort of spat the dummy and I thought, I'm just going to go and I'll, I'll do this show and maybe Helen will have some more shows. And um, that was what happened. And I was able to persuade Richard, who was pretty disenchanted with politically what was happening at the National at that point to come with me um, and that you know something would happen, we'd get something together um, and to cut a long story, that, that is what happened, I mean the, we still had problems at the National um, a lot of people resigned when we resigned so we were accused of blackmailing the National at that point I remember Christopher Morahan came to see me saying why are you doing this, why are you undermining and I said we didn't we're not doing anything to anybody. Um, but anyway, that all got eased out, and we then eventually left, and, uh, and I did a Vita. And Helen did come back um, with another show, Clifford Williams and um, Dracula, with, you never guess who played the lead in this, George Chakiris. Oh, really? Yes. Wow. Um, and Mickey Feast, who'd played Ariel in The Tempest, was in it. Um, and... Um, uh, there was an amazing, amazing crew of people. But it was a nightmare show to do. And Michael White was putting... Another um, Australian. Uh, was putting <laughs> um, uh, another version of Dracula on with Frank Langella. Oh, great. Yeah. And uh, so this became a sort of competition. And um, I remember going to Helen one day saying that we're going terribly over budget. I had these very fancy spreadsheets that I had you know, printed at the National. Of course, no computers then, everything done by hand. And I said, Helen, we're over budget and, you know, Clifford is not really on top of his game um, and we're just making more and more special effects to cover up the defects in the show. And she looked at me, leant down, picked up her handbag and opened it and pulled out her checkbook and leant over to me and she said, darling... This is the budget. <laughs> How much do you need? And I never worked with her again. Right. I left. I walked off. I never did another show with her again, which is very... Well, I don't know. Um, she was a force of nature, Helen. But funnily enough, wind forward, I don't know how many years, 15 years... And Helen came into my life privately and became a very best friend. What was it like being on the ground floor of 
a musical like Evita because... Oh, terrifying. Terrifying, yeah. I didn't know whether to sit on the toilet or throw up. Right. I used to go home and be sick. It, the pressure of getting that show on. And, of course, I'd gone from, you know, basically a fantastic internal system to the West End, which had nothing. Production management didn't exist still. So you're creating your own job description. Yeah. Really. yeah. And, um, yeah, uh, yeah, it was a ride. But it worked, thank heavens. And, um, and Hal was very appreciative. And he was a terror too because I, I used to say Hal doesn't, um, Hal doesn't actually direct shows. He auditions them because he'd just say, show me this, show me that. And then he'd pick what he liked. Or he'd say, no, you stop doing that, but you continue doing it. And it was quite funny. He, he, Hal, of course, was a stage manager in his past. Yes, yes, originally. Yeah. And that's what really became clear to me, was that he was actually stage managing the show. But he could never say up front what he really needed. He wanted it to do everything. And the, the original design for Avita did everything. It was a magic box. And things popped in on trucks and so forth. All of that got flayed away during the process of the technicals. And became that very bare-bones, Brechtian yeah, sort of... Yeah, and the person who really delivered that show at that time in many, many ways was Larry Fuller, the choreographer, who was unbelievably talented within that genre of work and sadly didn't have a huge career, um, obviously to me anyway, after that. Um, but yeah, he did... And the way he moved the crowds around yes, for that, some of that staging is very it's, very yeah. dancer and has been it? and has been ripped off by people as original ideas many times in the, in the years since um, and of course we had some fantastic people you know Elaine Joss Ackland playing Peron who you know was a you know a force and, and dear old um, um, David Essex David Essex mm. who was just such a lovable chap and, uh, I mean, he, he would always arrive slightly surprised that he was in this world and doing it, you know? It, it was quite extraordinary. And it, it, it wasn't received well by the critics at first, was it? No, well, it I don't all... think any of the shows I'd ever done have been that well received <laughs> by the critics. Um, no, um, but again, the public loved it. It caught the mood of the moment. Um, it had a scale about it in a modern sense that hadn't been seen. Um, before that, superstar, but in a, in a different way. Um, and some fantastic music. And Tim's lyrics. I mean, you know, when he, he... Nobody can touch him when he's on song. It's just amazing. So, yeah, it became, it became a, a powerhouse, really, and moved very quickly. And then, of course, it came out here. It wasn't long before... Um, I was talking to dear old John Robertson about um, it coming out to Adelaide. And, uh, and then I took it to uh, America. Um, and it opened actually on the West Coast first and then went to Broadway. Um, so, yeah, that was, a, that, was, that was very valuable for me because people realised how technically complex that show was for its time. Uh, had, it had four follow spots, which was unheard of at that time, two out front, two on stage. Uh, a rake floor, which is very controversial with 
um, equity. It was a one in 16 rake, and there was huge stresses about people dancing on a rake floor like that, you know, eight shows a week. It had the film content, which was complex to do at that time, the whole issues of... Um, would it catch fire? Yes. <laughs> I mean, simple things like that. Yeah. yeah, I remember having terrible trouble with the London County Council ran the theatres in those days, and the district surveyors department would come in with the fire brigade, and you know, you'd be like under factory conditions. It was quite tricky. Um, uh, and in fact, it was it was really then that I fell in love with that theatre, and I thought because it wasn't a theatre before we went in there. There'd been one piece in there. It was the uh, Cinerama, home of Cinerama in London. Right. And then before that, it was a forces club. And uh, I'd always thought, oh, gosh, if you could get your hands on this, it'd make quite an interesting theatre. And, and not long later, Robert Stigwood said to me, you know... Um, another Australian. Yes, another Australian. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that before. Um, what, about buying, um, what about buying the palace? Um, and Prince Lintler was thinking of selling it at that point, and I... I said, oh, no, let's buy the Prince Edward. And he went, oh, no, no, dear. Um, so that boat passed. But I'd always, I'd always kept a, a place for that. I thought it was very underrated. And then it had a very chequered career after, after Evita had, had been in there. Um, but, yeah, that was, a, that was a major plank for me. And then having done the other bits for Helen and then other producers would approach us... Um, did Bar Mitzvah Boy with Don Black, um, various productions of Fiddler and, you know, those kind of things. So when did uh, Cats creep into your lap? Cats came, again, because of another national theatre person, actually, John Napier. And we'd done... I'd done Equus with John at the National. And um, he'd worked in the West End doing a Doctor Who, a Dalek. Show. A stage show. Yes, right. which had not gone terribly well but needed some help and we helped. And um, he would often come and have coffee with us. People would drop into our office in town just to have a cup of coffee because the first time ever there was a place where creative, technical people could meet. And, could gather. Yeah. And we had our own team. We had our own carpentry team, our own electric sound. Um, I was still very keen on lighting and sound and those things and was very keen to make space for those people. And we had a, we had a lighting office and I had a sound company and, you know, all very Mickey Mouse, but all in the right spirit, all trying to give these people a chance to build real careers. And um, John came one day and he said, look, I, I'm doing this show um, and... Uh, it's called Cats, and we all, of course, fell about. It's like, it's called Cats. Well, we can't do it. We're busy doing dogs. <laughs> and these jokes rolled around for ages. And one day he came and he said, I've got to get you on the show. They don't know what they're doing. And he said, I'm going to get you to do all of the public areas. And Richard and I looked at each other. And what said, do you mean by public areas? Well, the, the all, front of house all the audience, or... front of house stuff. Yes, right. And we said, but, John, you can't split a show like that with a theatre that is all in the public area. There's no proscenium. Um, and he said, well, you know that, and I know that, but they don't, and you'll just get the whole show. It'll just automatically come to you. So that's what we did. And um, uh, I was busy, actually, redesigning Jesus Christ Superstar to go on tour. And 
um, that was quite a big job because it was it was like this permanent installation. You had to take dynamite to get it out of the theatre at the palace. It was um, fluorescent tubes with ballast units that must have weighed tons and tons and tons under the stage and all this complicated lighting of the floor. So we were going to do a tour of it. Well, how do you move something like that and retain all of the essence of the original design? So I'd focused on this for a long time and it was decided that Richard would be the lead on Cats and I would come in and help here and there. So that's the way it went. And um, they got into a real pickle with Cats. I mean, the show did its first preview without having done a dress rehearsal for the second act. Um, and I'd gone down to see them a number of times with the set, which was still, you know, because of what they were trying to do, it was being invented sort of as it went along. And so I was sort of known a bit, but not, you know, I wasn't in the middle of it like Richard was. Um, anyway, the, the show um, opened, it, it became this huge success. And um, about six weeks later, um, the office rang over and we were literally diagonally di opposite each other. Cameron was in the top floor of the Fortune Theatre and I was at 49 Wellington Street in Covent Garden. So it was literally either side of this crossroads. And uh, we went out the door, walked over to see him and um, he said, I want you to sort my company out. You'd obviously made an impression on cats. Yes, I suppose so. And um, we looked at each other and said, all right, let us think about this. So we went away and Richard said, look, you do that, I don't do that. Richard didn't like anything that wasn't about building sets. He was very hands-on. He was very yeah. hands-on and very organised. I mean, a great strategist and all of that, but he didn't like all that stuff. The politics. Yeah, the politics. The, uh, you know, the people business. The people yeah. business in that way, yeah. Um, and, and so I, I did it. And um, I did it by putting on... Um, My Fair Lady with Alan J. Lerner directing it because I thought the only way to really learn how a company works is to actually do something in it and so Cameron said well do this nobody else is paying attention to it and, I mean it was real suitcase job I worked on that and I, I came out of that and I realised that actually um, I won't go into the detail but Cameron had done a number of things to simplify and retain control of his company that had actually diminished his ability to actually do things. Um, and so I handed a report in after, I can't remember how many weeks, and um, he hated it. And I had made all sorts of recommendations, saying you need to do this, you need to get somebody who can do that, you need... And I went back to Richard and I said, well, that's that. I said, I'm sorry, I've not only fucked up the consultancy, but it's unlikely that we'll ever get another show from him. And we laughed about it and said, you know, it's all right, we've got lots of other things to do. And we were very, we were suddenly sort of doing lots of things. And we do tiny little plays. We weren't just doing big, you know, we were doing wonderful, you know, plays with Judy Dench and, you know, all sorts of people. Um, so... Another month or so went by, and then the phone rang again, and it was Cameron saying, I'd like you to come over and speak to me. 
he'd, he'd, he'd had time to think. He'd had time to think, so I went over and spoke to him. And he said, look, I, I really don't like all of this. I don't want to do that. But I want you to come and do it. And I said, pardon. He said, you know what to do. You just come and do it. And I said, but I've got my own business. He said, well, you can run that. And I said, well, yes, but, you know, there's a... I have an ability here to... He said, it doesn't matter what. You just do what you want. You do it the way you think it should be. And if you're not sure about something, just ask me. And at this point, Cameron was travelling quite a lot. You know, he was coming out here to Australia because... Well, I guess Cats was exploding too. Well, no, not then. No, not then, right. No, but he... He was coming out doing Oklahoma. Little Shop came out here. Um, I think Fair Lady. Um, he was he was doing um, productions of. Um, I think it was Tom Foolery. Yes, the review. Um, so he was he was dodging him out a lot and of course I was just dropped into something very intense I, w I didn't really see the bigger picture at that, that point but I started to work on all these bits and pieces and uh, of course I just I loved it um, and I became consuming it wasn't something that I could do with the production office but um, I agreed that the production office would do all of the shows that um Richard could run the company and I would go off and do this because I really did want to produce and this was a great opportunity. So your role now became more of a, a, pr a producing role? Yes. Yeah. Um, I, I would say probably managing role at that point because I was trying to make everything work. Um, there was a lot of history to sort out um, which needed addressing and so there's a lot of housekeeping to do. But within that, there were all of these shows bouncing around and, you know, um, Cats was a pretty full-time operation at that point, managing that. And that we did put a resident team into, so we had every area covered so that the creatives were represented all the time. We had resident director, choreographer, um, um, at, at that time, did you realise that it was going to be literally now and forever? <laughs> no. Nobody knew really what that meant. Um, but it was incredibly powerful as, you know, the advance increased. And then the interest came for America and Schubert's were licensed it with Cameron um, and Andrew. Um, and Cameron had done work there before there had been plans to, uh, you know, he was obviously had an eye to America and the opportunities that, you know, would happen there. And I was very leery about it because when I'd done Avita, um, I, I didn't really like the way it worked. It, it was very clear that um, the producers were not well represented from a managerial point of view on the technical side of things, that there were a lot of done deals, often between producers and the workshops. Um, so various contractors. Yes. Yeah. Um, the contractors called the shots. They would decide who the crews would be. In those days, most of the people working in the shops were in Local 1 operating the show at night. So they'd be on the bench in the day 
and they'd be in the theatre at night. Right. It was very much a father to son. Uh, I mean, it made the unionisation in the UK look very lame by comparison. And it was, you know, the Teamsters as well, all of that. Um, very tough. And I'd had a bit of an experience of that in Canada because um, I've always been very hands-on and you're not allowed to be. And I got so shouted at in Canada that they made me an honorary member of IATSE because they couldn't stop me climbing up a ladder to do things. Um, so they did take all of that stuff quite seriously. Uh, and I didn't like this sort of closed shop mentality. Um, and again, it was a very formative stage. You know, it, uh, it wasn't as we know it today. Um, there was no such thing as a production manager on Broadway. So um, Cats happened and again was a huge success on, on Broadway and we were then planning, we, well, Oliver was just about to be done, which was a disaster. It closed in a month, um, which again had been licensed. Um, and then Song and Dance, which... Cameron did using the general managers that the Schuberts used, Tyler Gatchell, Gatchell and Neufeld. And they were lovely, but never quite, quite did what Cameron wanted. And um, I said to him, look, it won't, it won't work here like this. I said, the only way it will work is if we do this ourselves, because we're the ones who know what we want. Um, and that means putting in a much bigger commitment to it because historically all shows were just licensed around the world and nobody really knew how they were put together um, and nobody really cared as long as they got their check you know there wasn't a huge concern about this detail or that detail well we were you know pains in the ass about detail so after we did song and dance Cameron threw the towel in and said you're right what 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 do you think and I said, we just need to set our own office up and, and, and we'll do it. We'll create it ourselves. So he said, all right, um, let's think about that. And he had a very dear friend who was, Albert Poland was the queen of Off-Broadway. I mean, Albert, you find Albert is mentioned every other word if you look at the history of Off-Broadway. And he gave us a little room. We'd always camped in his space and shared his secretary, who in fact became our secretary in the end. And, and that's sort of how we started to get a, a foothold there. And it really blossomed with Les Miserables, because when Les Miserables um, opened, and again to poor reviews, and, and we hadn't even spent the last third of the capital in transferring it, um, Roger Stevens from the Kennedy Centre. I'm sort of slightly collapsing things here, but Roger sure. Stevens from the Kennedy Centre, who again was a legend man, you know, appointed by Kennedy to open and run the place. Um, a real mensch. And um, he arrived and wanted to do it. He thought it was a wonderful show and it would be great at the Kennedy Centre. And that gave us our foothold to then think, well, we could do the Kennedy Centre and then take it in. And he became a partner in that. And he introduced us to his general manager of the Kennedy Centre, who was general managing the Kennedy Centre whilst also being a Broadway general manager, who became my lifelong bosom buddy, a man called Alan Wasser. And Alan had um, been 
general managing shows like Sugar Babies, and he'd done all of those. Uh, and he arrived, and we just hit it off. And he basically, again, to cut a long story short, became our general manager and our office and did nothing else for, I don't know, 15 years. And that was really how I was able to establish the American office. And then, of course, I said, well, we're not going to build shows like this anymore. And I want to meet the crew. It became a big joke on Broadway that not only did the artists have to audition, but the crew had to audition. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, it was very funny. But I had some fabulous people. And some of them were terrified, too. They were told not to work for us. One boy... Um, now a, a mature man many years later but was beaten up for saying he was going to come and work for us and he didn't he eventually came and worked for me on Saigon many years later and is now a brilliant automation carpenter and manager and does a lot of fantastic things around the place um, but uh, yeah some people were very um, intimidated to come and work for us because we were breaking all the rules. The shop decide this and that and no. I had a production manager. The production manager would have an assistant. They would have a department. They would all work with the electricians, the carpenters. They were, you know. And I, and I had some great old timers who said, yeah, it's time for a change, you know, and came and got involved. So that, it was a big change. The Australian wing was next, really, because Cameron kept going to Australia and I didn't go until we opened Cats. Um, and I'd been always rather curious as to why we weren't doing anything in Europe. And I knew that Cameron had lost a lot of money doing a show in Europe. And, and I, I was one of the things I had to sort out. And so he didn't want to know about Europe, Germany, France, you know, whatever. And... Um, I was always a bit curious about that. And then when I went to Australia and I, I met, you know, the team that were working out of the Theatre Royal with Freddie Gibson, dear Freddie. Um, and uh, I went back to Australia for the first birthday of Cats in Melbourne. It had left Sydney, gone to Melbourne. And there were huge union problems in Melbourne. And... Adelaide were the managers of the show. Um, Adelaide Festival. Adelaide Festival. Yeah. They produced and managed the show. And, um, well, not to put too fine a point on it, I, the, the crew were being paid money each week not to go on strike. Um, on top of their on top of their th wages, and I was beside myself. And everybody said, "Oh, you've got to be very it's, a, the, it's very tough here, and they'll take you down the shed." And I laughed. I said, "What does that mean? Take you down the shed?" <laughs> anyway, um, I said, oh, "Look, we have to address this." And uh, so I had a meeting with the union people, and they said, "Well, they, you know, we're, they've got to be paid properly because they they've got permanent jobs now, and they can't go off and do their." you know, other casual work. Freelancing, yeah. I said, gosh, that's dreadful. Um, I had no idea that's what we were doing. Look, I release everybody from their contract now. They can go in two weeks. And I could see the shop steward shuffle a bit. And the guy said, what? I said, look, if we're, if we're restricting your members' ability to get work, then obviously we'll release them from their contracts. 
And there was this icy moment. And I'm sure Robbo thought somebody was going to get up and punch me. But the whole thing just dissolved. Well, no, no, we should talk more about... And that was really the beginning of things like um, the uh, joint bargaining agreements and all the award systems that happened and our ability to negotiate with individuals and not directly with the union. And um, that was really the beginning of Australia, you know, in terms of all those shows. Uh, Cats and Lemmys and Phantom and... I mean, they have... Um, taken over the world, you know, there's been productions in almost every continent. How much does something like marketing and good management come into play there for the um, breadth of success that they've had? Well, obviously it's very important, but it's not what we did. And I remember this first came up with Germany because cats going to Germany wasn't going to happen and I I got a phone call one day from Andrew's office Um, his accountant had somebody who'd arrived to talk to him from Germany about putting cats on and I said but you own the rights we don't own the rights we're partners but you drive the bus on these kind of issues and he said yes but nobody will talk to him here so I said well look send him over I'm happy to talk to him and he said would you come and produce cats in Germany for us. And I went, oh, wonderful. I said, I'd love to, but we can't actually produce it. I will teach you how to produce it and we will put the team together, but you have to finance it. And most importantly, you have to sell it because I don't know your market. And that's the most important thing is to know your market. And I went to Cameron and Andrew and said, you know, and you can imagine the reaction, what, we're never going back to Germany, you know, all this. And I said, no, wait a minute, we're not at risk. But I, you know, I've been banging the drum about this. I believe there's a real opportunity here. And, um, yeah, we, in 85, we opened it in Germany, in Hamburg. And that was basically taken on to other places. Japan was another huge... That was hard, and we had to set up our own drama school in Japan to teach people to sing and act in a Western way because musical phrasing is completely different, you know, in Japanese and Chinese and so forth. Um, the show would be sung in the language of the, yeah. the country. Well, that was the one in. thing that we did that I think, um, you know, regardless of your view of the material itself, what made it special was the fact that we allowed every country to make it their own. So we were there saying this is how it should be put together. But in terms of the heart and spirit that you give it, then those artists would bring that, the best possible people or the most appropriate people to doing the translation were engaged. And we were were lucky we had the BBC Foreign Unit working with us, helping us assess translations. You know, should this be a poet who does this show or should this be a literary person or... um, and that was, you know, that was done very, very carefully, you know, through, I mean, I can't remember in my time, 20, 27, 37 countries, you know, 35 languages, whatever it was. I, I wasn't that closely involved in the management of, uh, of the merchandising for cats, but I was for Les Miserables, and we, we set up our own operation, in fact, for it. It wasn't farmed out. 
and uh, Les Miserables was extraordinary. Um, and you still see shirts around now, and you still see cat shirts around now, of course. Um, but yeah, that became that became pretty significant. But I think one of the more significant things was just the word of mouth. That the you know this was. It's very difficult to appreciate the context today because there's too much on everywhere all the time. In those days, there wasn't that much on. Um, we were the only people. Um, we were the only people who just did musical theatre. We didn't do plays. We only did musicals. Nobody else did musicals. And it wasn't until Les Mis had hit, Phantom had just opened, that people realised that actually these shows can become really serious business machines. And for me, that was the death of it, because that then attracted corporate world to theatre because suddenly it became as important financially as film. I mean, Phantom grossed more than Titanic, you know. It's extraordinary. Uh, what about those... Um, I've never was lucky enough to go to one, but those opening night parties, I, you know, Phantom of the Opera at the, at the Regent Theatre in Melbourne. Yes, uh, that was... Which, well, before it, was restored, I think, wasn't it? So It was. That was a we, funny story. I, the parties became, by accident, they became something that became as notorious as the shows, really. But um, it happened initially with Les Mis because it was our first show on Broadway and I was very keen we did something special. And the parties were usually, you know, canapes and a drink at Sardi's, which was lovely, but I just... I, wanted to do something different and I, I said to Cameron you know can we can we do something that's a, a bit special for this um, and I spoke to my my what is now my oldest friend in America I'm actually just going to go and visit shortly um, who had worked um, in the corporate world and had done a lot of hospitality in the corporate world and I was a bit cheeky with him. I went to dinner with him one night um, down at Peter's on 2nd Avenue and said, Jimmy, can you think of somebody who could maybe give me a, a hand? I've got this idea for an opening night party. And just as we drank more and talked more, I just could see I was reeling him in. And uh, he did that party in every party and continues to do parties. Um, and we did it at the Armoury which um, is this amazing old building on the Upper West Side. And, um, it, yeah, it was extraordinary. I mean, we built campaign tents. It's, it's where they used to parade internally, training troops. It goes back, you know, 150 years. And um, the other thing that it had was it had a loft for homeless people. And it was a great opportunity for us to draw attention to New York's homelessness, which was terrible at that time. And um, it got cleaned up by just removing people. But at that time, it was everything was out on the street to see. And New York was still quite rough. I mean, it wasn't like the end of the 70s and early 80s where policemen were still getting shot on the subway. But it was, you were careful where you went. And um, anyway, we did this party there and then we 
arrange for all of this food to feed everybody at homelessness and and got this um got this attention onto this subject um so a lot of the party side of things we had a serious side too as well that you know allowed us to draw attention to certain things a lot with Saigon as well with the Bouidoy and and all of that which was I mean now is all gone but in those days you know when we opened Saigon the Bouidoy were still only 15 or 16 years old Mm. you know so it was still very real um so yes it, it set off a train of events for parties that you know you know we took everywhere and it came here and um it happened at the Regent, funnily enough, because um, I discovered the theatre was an old cinema, but it, it had closed. I'd gone back to look at it, having seen it before, um, and couldn't get in because it was all closed up and derelict. And we'd had a great party in the gardens at Parliament House before, and, and I said, look, this would be a great place to do this. It's Lon Chaneyville. You know, we can put the film on and anyway, um, we weren't allowed to use it. And Joan Kerner, who was a very troubled premiere at that time um, and was very keen on us because she gave gave this speech about Phantom being this, you know, Phantom-led recovery of Melbourne. Um, She said, I can't, there's nothing I can do. Um, The only person who can give you permission is the commissioner of police. And so I had to toddle off and see him. And as I was going in, uh, there were these gentlemen from the fire brigade coming out with holding stacks of videos that obviously been showing horrors of, you know, public burnings. And he said, look, it's a very difficult situation. I know what you want to do. It's a good intention. Draw attention to the building, blah, blah. But the fire brigade are really concerned if there's a fire there, it'd be a disaster. And all I can say is that, you know, if you were to do it, you'd have to have fire tender and staff there, and that's expensive. And I said, that's that's completely understandable. Um, Could we have six? And he said, what? I said, we'd have six tenders. And, you know, as many people who want to work that night. Um, I even thought it would be nice to have a fireman as a table decoration on each of the tables. And he (laughs) laughed and he said, look, it's not funny, but you will have to. And I said, no, I'm really happy to pay and be happy to have as many tenders as we can get round the building. Um, And we got permission. Wow. No smoking party, although there was an alleyway, some famous photographs of well-known actors in the alleyway in black tie or white tie smoking smoking a cigarette. Um, and we decked out the uh, auditorium, covered all the old dilapidated chairs that were in there and put tables and chairs in. And the stage was stripped, just bare walls, um, black dance floor with the Phantom logo on it and the silent movie of Lon Chaney playing on the back wall. And dear old Roger Barrett, who so sadly is no longer with us, um, lit it beautifully for us. He used to laugh, having to say, I have to more trouble lighting your parties than I do any shows, you know. Um, But it looked fantastic, and it did draw attention. And David, who, David Mariner, who we'd been working with, you know, saw that, you know, something was going to happen here and he would get in there, and he did, uh, which was great. 
Do you have a favourite musical? Oh, it's tough. I mean, Les Mis immediately comes to mind just because of, you know, it was an extraordinary piece of work with a, with a team of people that I grew up with in a way, you know, long before just commercial theatre. And the Vita because it was a, a milestone for me. Um, it was... It was just a magical, magical moment to get that show. I remember listening to the album and thinking, I can't believe I'm going to work on this. And to work with Hal, who became a lifelong, you know, friend um, and worked with again, you know, very unusual that that, that happens like that. Um, and, and, and Long Day's Journey Into Night is a special show for me with Olivier because it was the crowning, really, of a, a fairly long association with him. But there's so many, and every one is special because really they're all ways. family, you mm. know, they mm. all have their moments, yeah. Are you still hungry for the next project? If I'm really honest, no. Um, only because I've changed, I think. I, look, I moved to Australia and um, I discovered the natural world in a way that I hadn't recognised since I was a small child because I grew up in the country. And I realised how special it was and that I was fortunate enough to take the time to enjoy it. So um, that's what I do now, really. I mean, I'm still, you know, engaged with it. Um, not really here, if I'm honest, um, but I'm still um, very engaged in London. And uh, I, you know, talk to friends and help friends who have projects that, you know, they need help with, and occasionally in America. And that's enough for me. Have you subscribed to Stages yet? Do so and keep up to date with every new guest episode as it is released. Subscribe in Apple Podcasts and through Wooshka, our hosting platform. And please take the time to rate and review. The podcast is in the iTunes directory. It helps to grow our audience and reach more Stages listening. I'm Peter Ayers. Catch you next time on Stages. Stages.